you have your copies of God's Word, would you open with me to Psalm 103? Psalm 103. If you came in late this morning while the announcements were being made, I, um, I have my own mic. It says Rev. Jeff on it, and Dr. Young has his mic as well. That's the key to Dr. Young sounding so deeply resonant. It's all in the microphone. Well, the reason I sound so nasal and tinny is because of my own microphone. Well, I've picked up Dr. Young's mic today and feel a new surge of confidence as I uh, fill the pulpit in his absence. Psalm 103. There are 150 psalms that capture the many moods of the human soul. Uh, there are psalms that are captured, uh, that are written rather in seasons of dejection and discouragement. There are psalms that celebrate God's faithfulness and God's goodness. But the 103rd psalm is unique and that it's without complaint. It's without discouragement. It's without petition. It's an unbridled expression of excitement and joy in the mercies of God. It expresses uh, what it feels like to know and understand personally the mercy of God. It's a page, if you will, from the spiritual journal of the psalmist. It's not so much an exegetical explanation. It's not even a theological treatise as, as it is the well of emotion welling up in the soul of a man who has received God's rich mercies. Its mood is bright and filled with joy. Filled with anticipation of yet even more mercy. Let me give you some idea of the mood of this psalm that will help you catch the flavor of it. Uh, This summer, Melinda and I were treated to the warm hospitality of of Johnny and Lindsay Coggin. My, did he marry up and did he marry well. We had a wonderful evening of fellowship and then we went out in the backyard so that their precious and beautiful little girl, Lucy, who fortunately favors her mother could play in the backyard, and uh, we had a, just a great time visiting in the backyard, and she was climbing on a, a gym set there, and the next door neighbor is a school teacher, and Lucy loves the teacher, and the teacher loves Lucy, and Lucy heard her voice and began to squeal. It was a, more of a shriek of excitement, and when she peeked through the fence, the, the, the wooden fence, Lucy spontaneously stamped her feet and squealed and extended her hands. That's the flavor of this psalm. Somewhere along the way, you and I lose that sense of joy in God's presence. Somewhere along the way, we become stiff and stoic, and our emotions become frozen in the presence of the living God and at the expressions of His goodness and His mercy in our lives. This past Friday, I went to pick up my two-year-old grandson who at his birth I thought was free of original sin, but now he's two and the remnants of that sin are beginning to show up. And when I entered the room and he first saw me, Caden squealed in delight and hollered, Papa, and ran to grab his Papa. That's the flavor of this psalm. That's the mood of this psalm. The psalmist is filled with wonder and amazement. At the mercies of God. So would you read with me, beginning in this 103rd Psalm, verse 1. We'll read all the Psalm, but we're not going to deal with all of it in detail. Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. And all the Lord's people should say, bless the Lord, O my soul. I recently ran an errand for my wife, Melinda. I went to the grocery store and I had a little post-it list of the few things I was to pick up for her. And when I went into the grocery store, Kroger, Houston Levy, I realized that I had forgotten that list. My post-it list had been posted on the seat of my expedition and I had forgotten it. Now, very manlike, did I call and ask for that list again? Of course not. My pride prohibited me from doing that sort of thing. Uh, it's the same kind of pride that would prohibit you from asking for directions in a city. Melinda and I have seen some of the worst parts of many cities in America because I have steadfastly refused to ask for directions. And real men do not use GPS systems. We navigate by the stars. And we end up in the worst parts of many large cities in America. So in the grocery store, I managed to get a few of the items, but I managed to get many items we did not need. You've all had that experience when you've gone to the, the store, you've gone to the market, or you've gone someplace and you have forgotten your list. I recently read an article of some of the most unusual items left in four-star hotels. I'm sure you've left things in hotels, haven't you? Well, this list was rather amazing. I hope none of you have ever left your false teeth in the four-star hotel in which you stayed. Surely, at breakfast that morning, it would have dawned on you that you had left them. One hotel, four-star hotel, a bag of marijuana was left. If it was yours, I'm sure it was for medical purposes. One four-star hotel had $16,000 cash left in it. Can you imagine? 
And then one four-star hotel had a $2.5 million cello left in it. It belonged to Yo-Yo Ma, the internationally famous cellist, who had been performing in splendid fashion for three decades and left his cello. We all know what it's like to misplace, to lose, we can't find. This psalm reminds us that spiritual forgetfulness is chilling to the heart. It shrivels the streams of mercy that we would experience and the streams of mercy that we would express for other people. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning that forgetting God's mercy results in joyless worship and joyless living because it steals our heart and it makes the the warm flow of the heart toward God and toward others soon cold in matters of worship and mercy. And so seeing and recognizing and savoring God's mercy motivates grateful worship and grateful living, even as it compels us to be merciful toward other people. But you notice this psalm opens with a reminder of God's mercy as the source of all of our gifts, as the source of all of our blessings, if you will. I remember as a boy growing up, we would sing often in the church at which I was a part. Uh, one time a year, this old hymn, Count Your Blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. That's what the psalmist is doing. And in doing that, he's saying that we must remember that God's mercy is the source of all of it. All of the gifts. We merited none. We deserve none. The psalm opens in verse 1 with an imperatival call to worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It frames the psalm. It begins with bless the Lord in verse 1. And it ends in verse 22 with that same call to worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And in between are all of these grounds, all of these reasons why we have experience, grounds, rather, I should say, for experiencing the mercies of God. Well, the Hebrew word translated in our English text, bless, taken literally, would mean to bend or to bow. It would mean to posture yourself on one's knees. It's a posture of dependence and humility. It's a posture of grateful acknowledgement. This psalm begins with a call to worship in one's soul. It's, it's a solo song, if you will, sung in private. It's in those private moments that we stir up our hearts to worship God. And one of the ways that we stir ourselves in those moments is begin to reflect back to the Lord all of the ways that He's mercied our lives with His, with His blessings and with His gifts. The psalm expresses what it feels like to have received mercy from God. This summer I was trying to conclude a, a doctoral project through Covenant Seminary. And one of my responsibilities was to interview six to eight area pastors on a particular subject. And one of the pastors that I interviewed is an Episcopal rector. And he gave me a brief tour of his church and showed me around. And one of the things I noticed in that sanctuary was kneeling benches that are affixed to the back of the pews. Now, knowing a little bit about Episcopal practices and so on, and that they have a very liturgical form of worship, a very uh, laid out and structured and ordered form of worship. But I tell you, the thing that struck me was how absolutely appropriate it is for us to kneel in God's presence. Whether 
inwardly, figuratively, or literally on our knees to kneel before the Lord and to recognize His awesomeness and also to recognize that He has mercied our lives in so many great ways in both large and small to kneel before the Lord. In one of John Piper's books, he makes the statement, not bragging, just a statement of illustration of how three decades ago plus he built for himself a homemade altar. It's a rather crude altar, but for nearly three decades he's begun many of his mornings in his private study at home, kneeling before that altar and reminding himself of God's goodness and of God's mercy in his life and pouring out his heart in the presence of this all-merciful God. That's how the psalm begins with, Bless the Lord, O my soul, because worship is fueled by remembering personal expressions of God's mercy. That's what the psalmist does. In verses 3 through 5, he just begins to rehearse them in broad outline. He turns these, these expressions of mercy into opportunities for gratitude and opportunities for praise. Notice again in verses 3 through 5, he recognizes the benefits of the Lord and specifies them as forgiving all of his iniquity, healing his diseases, redeeming his life from the pit, or some translations will say destruction, crowning your life with steadfast love and mercy and satisfying your life with good things so that your youth is steadily renewed. He's recognizing and rehearsing before the Lord God's goodness in his life. Can't you see how that would begin to stir your heart in worship? To remember specific mercy. To personalize that mercy in your own life. And if you and I were to take these verbs of God's acts, forgives, heals, redeems, crowns, and satisfies, if we were to take the verbs and turn them into nouns, we would realize that forgiveness in every form That healing in every form, that redeeming and rescuing and crowning and satisfying are the active results of God's mercy in our lives. It's not because we deserve them. It's not because we merit them. In fact, I would say to you this morning, it's in spite of ourselves that God does these things for us. Because His nature is one oriented toward mercy, toward His people. God's mercy certainly shows in dealing with what the text calls our iniquity. The Hebrew word pashah means twisted or bent. That which took something that was right and good and ruined it. And God meets our iniquity with this word called forgiveness. In fact, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, the word forgive is always only used by God. That's why in the New Testament, when the Pharisees saw Jesus saying to the man with a withered hand, Son, your sins are forgiven, they said, Only God can forgive sins, and they were right. And so everything that is bent about us, everything that is twisted about us, all that we ought to be and are not, God responds in merciful forgiveness. God's mercy shows in healing. It's according to His purpose. I understand that. It's all according to His purpose. In ways that I do not understand, sometimes God heals directly and supernaturally. I know a leading example of that in Fort Myers prior to my arriving in Fort Myers. So it has certainly has nothing to do with with me. But 
A dear, beloved brother of the Lord, Bob Burroughs, was healed of, I think it was melanoma in an advanced stage. In fact, the doctor told him, Bob, go home and get your house in order. And God sovereignly directly healed Bob. And Bob lived to be a, 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 an aged man well up in years, nudging 90 years of age when he died of natural causes. There are those occasions when God does the unexplainable, when he just steps in and directly and supernaturally for his own reasons and his own glory does those kinds of things. And it's always because he's being merciful. Then there, there are other ways that God heals as well. He heals indirectly, mediately. He uses means. Thank the Lord for pasteurized milk. Thank the Lord for polio vaccinations. Thank the Lord for flu vaccinations. We thank the Lord for all of these things because we know that ultimately they came from his hand. Thank the Lord for chemotherapy and surgeons who have great skills and diagnostic techniques that catch things early. We recognize all of that being an extension of God's mercy. And yet we know that ultimately healing is from the Lord and that someday this death-doomed, disease-prone body will return to dust from which it came. And yet we have the ironclad gospel promise that what will be sown in weakness will be raised in power, that what will be sown in mortality will be raised in immortality, that this flesh and blood will be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye, and what, what redemption is to the soul will become real to the body, so that we will both soul and body spend eternity with our Lord Jesus. So bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, because He heals directly, supernaturally, indirectly, through means, and ultimately, because of His mercy. God's mercy redeems our lives. He buys back those lost opportunities that sin had taken from us. Our rebellion had squandered opportunities, and yet God in mercy buys them back. He protects and He preserves us from ultimate and utter ruin beyond repair because He's a merciful God. Redeem is one of the richest words in all of Scripture. It's associated with the slave market, where slaves would be purchased by money, and yet we've been purchased not by money, not by gold and silver, First Peter says, but by incorruptible things, even by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In God's mercy, the psalmist says, crowns or adorns our lives. He beautifies us with his steadfast love, his faithful, steadfast love, a love and a mercy that will not, indeed, never will let us go. And so God's mercy becomes an anthem of praise. And the psalmist rehearses all of that in the presence of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that worshipers and every generation would have this stimulus, if you will, to praise, to fuel the joy of the Lord in our hearts. Several years ago, I was on the Tamiami Trail in Fort Myers. Uh, Fort Myers is like uh, Memphis, you know, how some streets... Turned to different names. When I first moved to Memphis, I, uh, I spent an hour. This is true. I have a terrible sense of direction. I've already confessed to that. But I'm telling you, I'm not using a GPS because real men do not use GPS. But I spent about an, an hour coming from the University of Memphis. I was on, I was actually on summer and I took Mendenhall because I knew 
that I lived off of Mendenhall, close to Winchester, and when I crossed the railroad tracks at Poplar, uh, somewhere along the way it became Mount Moriah. You know, Memphis does that. Streets become other things, and you don't if you, if you don't realize it, um, you become completely befuddled and lost. When I first moved back after being away 18 years, I was on stage and I took a wrong turn on Houston Levee and ended up at Canada Road. <laughs> well, in Fort Myers, Tamiami is Cleveland Avenue, and it's also Highway 41. I was on the stretch that's called the Tamiami Trail. And I was stuck in afternoon traffic. And I had on a little card the first five verses of this song. And I was looking over those verses stuck in traffic. And there's something that hit me about he redeems my life. It's from the New King James Version. He redeems my life from destruction. And I began to think about all the ways over the course of my four plus decades at that time that God had intervened in my life and had rescued me. How he had rerouted my life. How mercy had rewritten the stages of my life out of God's kindness. And I'm not embarrassed to tell you this morning that I began to cry in the car. I began to weep when I thought about how mercy had rescued me, how mercy had intervened, how mercy had brought a cold heart back to warmth, how mercy had brought a little boy to faith in Christ, how mercy had kept me through my college years, out of all the ways that God had intervened in my life. And so I would suggest to you that one of the ways to begin to personalize this psalm, indeed to personalize God's Word, is to rehearse it in prayer and worship yourself. If you keep a journal, write down all the ways that God has granted and extended to you mercy. And emphasize that when you share it with other people. Don't lay claim to what... God has done in your life out of His mercy. Don't boast and brag as if it were your own gifts, your own prowess, your own opportunities, but recognize in conversation the mercy of God as you share it with other people. Our pride blinds us to the depth of our need and God's unprompted response of mercy. We imagine that we're better people, that we're smarter, that we're more mature, that we're more spiritual. We imagine that our health is the result of something we do or something we don't do. We believe that we can protect, preserve, and restore the things that we think are important. We fail to realize that we have all of that and more because God is merciful. Secondly, the psalmist in verses 6 through 14 says that we must remember God's mercy is the source of every aspect of our salvation. I don't have time to go into all of this, but what the psalmist does is he rehearses Israel's salvation from Egypt in a few verses, in verses 6 through 10. Because God's intervention there is the pattern of His intervention in our own lives. What He did then, He still does today. His power is not short, His ear is not deaf, His mercy is not run dry. All that God did then, He still does to us in saving us from our sins. Verse 6 and 7, for example, says that He remembers His covenant. He remembers the promises that He's made. And He acts in mercy to make those true. Ephesians 1 says that He chose us in Himself before the foundation of the world. And yet, this season we celebrate that He also sent a Savior. He sent to us a Redeemer. Because it was necessary that a Savior come 
and live the life that you and I cannot live and die a death that we deserve to die so that we might find pardon and peace and acceptance and relationship with God. Ephesians 1.4 says that He chose us and Ephesians 13.8 says, or Revelation 13.8 says that He's the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And in a way that I cannot understand, I will be honest with you. Revelation 17, 8 says that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And so this Savior came, even the Lord Jesus, out of the rich mercies of God. To save all that God intended to save from eternity past. And He did it not because you and I deserve it. He did it in spite of what we deserve. And he devised this plan so that both his justice could be satisfied and that his mercy could be given and therefore that we might be saved. He saves and he shows mercy because that's the nature of his character. Look again at verses 8 and 10. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 8 is almost a direct quote from Exodus chapter 34 when Moses said to the Lord, Show me your glory. And God responded by saying this, that I am a God who is long-suffering, who is abounding in grace and mercy. It's the very nature of God to be merciful toward you. It's the very heart of God to mercy the people whom he has chosen to bring into fellowship and relationship with himself. And yet God's mercy toward us and saving us is beyond every standard of human measure. It's immeasurable. Verses 11, 12, he's uh, removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. How would you ever begin to measure that? They, there's the old saying that east never meets west. They're so far removed that that the sins that God has covered and the sins that God has shown mercy toward you as a result of Christ, you never run into them again. They never show up again. You never meet them. And yet His mercy is so personal and intimate that verses 13 and 14 compare it to the pity, the compassion, the tenderness of a father. In the first chapter of Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, um, I actually listened to that on tape this year going to St. Louis. Uh, just a while away the time, but never read the book and uh, found it on tape and listened to it. At the end of chapter 1, there's a very moving story of how, it's a true story of how a father had frequently become impatient with the son. The son often asked questions and and uh, the, the little boy made messes and he didn't pick up after himself and, and uh, he left his bike out in the yard or in the driveway. and He didn't mow the yard when... His dad had told him to and expected him to. And all those things that kids do that irritate us. Come on, fess up. You know what all those things are, right? Have you ever said, how many times have I told you? Have you ever said that? Have you ever said, if I have to tell you one more time? Well, all of those things that irritate us. This little boy was asleep one night and his dad came in late from a meeting. And he went in to check on his little boy. And he saw him there lying in bed, all curled up and tucked in the covers. And as he stood over him, the dad realized that he had been applying the wrong standard of measurement to his son. He had been expecting too much of the little boy because he was a little boy. 
Because he was not a man. Because he was not a grown-up. Because he was incapable of doing all that his father demanded and expected. Because he was a child. That's never true of our God. Because he knows our friend. He formed us. He fashioned us. He knows that we came from dust and that we're going back to dust. And so there's always the right standard applied to your life. And it's applied in mercy. Because he knows you. He knows what you're capable of. And he knows what you're not capable of doing. So as Alistair Begg says, there's no parental abuse in the character of God. He has mercied us as a father does his children. And so consequently, we live as people mercied by this great and gracious God. We understand what it is to be lost and to be found by the mercy of God. We understand what it is to be enslaved and freed by the mercy of God. And therefore, we're able to show that kind of mercy to others that we've experienced ourselves. And we show mercy without condescension. We show mercy without a sense of arrogance or a haughty spirit or high-mindedness. We know that but for the mercy of God, we would be in that very situation ourselves. Matthew Henry, many of you have a commentator in your library by Matthew Henry. Either the one or six volumes, but anyway, many of you are familiar with the name of Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry was once robbed and in his... In his spiritual journal or his diary, he he noted that. He said, I was robbed today. But Father, I thank you that they took my goods and not my life. They spared me. And Father, I thank you that I had something with which to take. Because you had given it to me. But Father, I'm most thankful and most grateful. That I was the one that was robbed. And not the one doing the robbing. You see, mercy changes Mercy received changes your orientation to other people because you understand. You understand, but for the mercy of God, that would be you. Went down to see the Tigers play ball Thursday night. Four my friends went with me and we were talking about Tiger Woods. So many of you have been talking about Tiger Woods. And someone in the car said, I certainly... Know that that's not excusable. But I understand how it happens. How celebrity and money and attractiveness and travel and hours of not being accountable to anyone for anything would lead a person into that kind of situation. You know what that observation is? That's an observation rooted in mercy. It's an observation that's rooted in the fact that one knows his or her own heart. And that you know that you're not better than anyone else. That you've not received anything from God that you've ever deserved. That you've ever merited in your life. That all that you have and all that is yours or anything that you ever hope to have will be because God has been merciful to you. And having received mercy, then you can show mercy to other people. The psalm moves in larger and larger concentric circles. Mercy to me, mercy to other people until in this final stanza we must remember that God's mercy has no end. That's how the psalm ends in verses 15 and 18 and following. We're like grass. We flourish today. We're gone tomorrow. The wind passes over in verse 16. It's gone. 
the steadfast love of the Lord, his hesed, his devoted, faithful, covenantal love is from everlasting to everlasting. And so the psalm closes with an exhortation to worship. It begins, it ends rather as it begins. But would you notice that this mercy is from an all-sovereign king, one who rules over all things. And therefore, listen, the mercy that God gives has strength in it. It has power in it. It's not a benign mercy that's wimp and that's wimpy and impotent and powerless. But the mercy that God bestows upon you and upon me has steel in it because it comes from a sovereign king. I frankly believe that ingratitude, our ingratitude, my ingratitude results in heartless worship. But it also results in merciless living. How many of us have ever said they don't deserve mercy? May I remind you that if you deserve it, it's not mercy. None of us deserve mercy or we wouldn't have mercy. For nearly 30 years in the face of economic collapse, natural disasters, armed conflict, political transitions and other crises, the Mercy Corps has been helping multiplied millions of people turn their crises into opportunity. And 95% of the people who make up this organization called the Mercy Corps are those who have received mercy themselves in some crisis. You and I are part of this vast number of a mercy corps. And as a result of that, brothers and sisters, we're worshipers. We're worshipers. We celebrate what we don't deserve and could never earn. And in the process of that celebration, we become people who give out that kind of mercy. Every one of us this morning has been recipients of some kind of mercy from God. Would you remember that this Christmas season? Would you remember that in the face of our greatest need, our lostness and our depravity, that the mercy of God took to itself flesh and He came in our likeness in order to save us, to rescue us? And would you join then with this psalmist and with me this morning in saying in response, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Let's pray. Our fathers, we bow before you this morning. Many of us this morning are in desperate need of your mercy. And so would you come with fresh streams of mercy. Some of us this morning have lost our perspective. Our our suffering has been so great. Our circumstances so fatiguing that, that we've lost our horizon. Would you restore that today as a result of this psalm and through the power and work of the Holy Spirit in applying the psalm to our own individual lives? Father, regardless of what season of life we're in today, I think every one of us who are thoughtful this morning And say, thank you, Father, for the mercy that you've granted to us. Thank you, Father, for the mercy that has come to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we offer our praise. And we offer ourselves afresh to you. And we do so in the name of our Savior, even the Lord Jesus. Amen.